Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda. Welcome, everyone, to the May episode of Mayo Clinic's Always On EM podcast. My name is Vank Bellamconda. I'm excited, as always, to join you with my colleague and friend, Dr. Alex Finch. We hope that you are finding our show helpful to your practice. If you feel like what we do is bettering your life, please tell a friend, as well as like, comment, and follow our show on whatever platform you're using. We appreciate all the positive reinforcement that you provide us. To that end, we have a great episode lined up for you. We continue looking into some of the topics less covered in emergency medicine. In general, our specialty is fantastic about looking into better ways to resuscitate patients and do procedures, but sometimes we overlook some of the less glamorous areas, or at least less glamorous from our perspective. And so we began wondering if we knew what we needed to regarding rheumatoid arthritis and its complications, treatments, and the experience of people with this condition. As we asked around, Dr. John Davis was recommended to us routinely, and I can see why. Dr. Davis is a professor of medicine and vice chair of the Division of Rheumatology here at Mayo Clinic, where he also serves as the clinical practice chair as well. As you might expect, he has received numerous awards in his career, including consecutive recognitions for generating top-level patient experiences, awards for education, including Teacher of the Year recognition within rheumatology, and teamwork awards within internal medicine and rheumatology. He serves as mentor to many other physicians of all levels and is a prolific researcher as well. He has received several federal R grants, as well as grants from private foundations and Mayo Clinic institutional grants as well. Fueled in part by this, and probably more directly by his passion, he has published nearly a hundred peer-reviewed publications in his career on a variety of topics throughout medicine and rheumatology. John, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with us this morning. Thank you for having me, Vink. Nice to join you, Alex, as well. Is it okay if we start things off with a case? Yeah, sure. I'm working a shift in the emergency department. It's about 1 a.m., and I have a 45-year-old female come in. She's had about two months of symmetrical pain in her hands and her wrists. The pain is getting worse, and she hasn't been able to be seen. I open up her chart, and I actually see that she's been seen by her primary care doc, and there was a concern for rheumatoid arthritis. There's a number of medications, and honestly, I haven't heard of them before. The nurse walks out and says she has an elevated temperature. Could you walk me through, if, if I were to call you at this point and say, where should I start with this patient? What types of things are starting to go through your head? Sure, Alex. Well, it's a great um, case and sounds already interesting and juicy for, <laughs> for those of us rheumatology uh, folks. 
a lot of things obviously come to mind. A patient with joint pain, you know, concern for uh, inflammatory arthritis, and I would probably interpret it as, as inflammatory arthritis, recognizing that rheumatoid is a specific diagnosis, and many different conditions can cause arthritis, especially if we're talking about arthritis and fever. So I would start with that and think through what do I need to think about in this kind of a patient? And also, of course, for you all, what are acute conditions that, you know, obviously are a threat to the patient's life or, or uh, organ function in the short term? You know, I think one thing is, is does this patient have uh, purely arthritis or is it a systemic autoimmune or, or inflammatory rheumatic disease? And so a patient like that could actually be presenting with something like uh, granulomatosis with polyangiitis. You can see patients that are actually coming in with arthritis, but they also have lung symptoms and fevers and other, other uh, systemic signs, cutaneous uh, manifestations. And so I think, you know, trying to do a careful evaluation of what is going on, what sy- systems are being affected for this patient is really important. And not getting too focused in on a local doctor thought rheumatoid arthritis is what this patient is developing. I can tell you examples of where patients that got referred to me to see for rheumatoid arthritis with nodules on the elbows and a positive rheumatoid factor, but like I said, turned out to have GPA or turned out to have Whipple's disease. And so need, need to think more broadly than just that one entity, although that is common and you're going to see that in, in the ED. So first of all, take a systemic approach, not focusing on, on arthritis as the main issue. Arthritis and fever, obviously thinking about uh, infection symptoms. Does the patient you know, have features of an upper respiratory uh, syndrome? What other systems are involved, like I said? I think respiratory is important. Skin, because a lot of our diseases may cause skin manifestations. You know, going through each of the organ systems, gastrointestinal, that's important. And thinking through uh, a review of systems is going to be important. I think what's really incredible about what you're saying and what what I learned even just preparing for this interview is that I'm switching my approach in some ways, my tired 1 a.m. mind. There's a clear chief complaint. I'm going to focus on this one thing and maybe not ask too many questions to get myself in trouble to really opening my aperture and considering what else is going on. And what I hear you saying is, number one, really trying to think through you know, does this patient actually carry this diagnosis? And I'd love to hear more about how this diagnosis is made and and what is rheumatoid arthritis. And then uh, kind of coming back and almost doing kind of a critical care note, because we're going to go by systems and consider life threats in almost every system to make sure they're safe for their outpatient appointment. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about rheumatoid arthritis? How is that diagnosis made? Well, rheumatoid arthritis is the, the most common autoimmune rheumatic disease. It's an autoimmune disease, so uh, literally a, a disease caused by loss of tolerance to proteins and antigens throughout the body. Patients present with persistent joint pain, stiffness, swelling, and other signs of inflammation. Usually there's a lot of fatigue, sleep disruption due to pain. There may be other systemic manifestations as well, but certainly it, it largely presents with joint pain. The joint pain may be intermittent, episodic, or it may be persistent daily. You know, there's a lot of different ways in which rheumatoid arthritis symptoms can manifest. You know, the classic textbook case is kind of insidious onset of pain and swelling involving small joints of the hands and feet. There are lots of patients that present that way, but that is not the only way it can present. I've uh, seen patients get admitted for acute arthritis with pretty significant swelling, 
of just one wrist, for example, hmm. with a backdrop of arthralgia that's been more persistent for a longer period of time. Or a tougher case even is acute hip pain in mm. a patient that got admitted you know, with a question of septic arthritis. And when you took the history, there had been episodic uh, joint pain and swelling episodes going back for about a year that's sort of migrating around the body. That's called palindromic rheumatism pattern. Hmm. And palindrome is a word like race car that you know b- begins at end just, you know, you can flip it around, it looks the same. So sort of like these discrete episodes of pain or swelling of one joint that may come up over one to two days and go away over, say, you know, four to seven days, and then migrate around to different small joints. So that is one thing you might see in the emergency department, right? Are acute flares of when there actually is a bit of a chronic backdrop of, of arthritis symptoms developing over time. John, what are some of the questions I could ask to be suspicious of palindromic rheumatism as opposed to septic arthropathy? I think that's incredible because I feel a lot more comfortable with the diagnosis of septic arthritis. That's something that I'm going to make with my hands, with a needle every time. And there are these cases where the story doesn't seem quite right, things don't fit. It's okay if there isn't a question, isn't a way to do that on history. I just thought I'd ask. Just I think uh, what he's saying is we just need to take a better history. <laughs> we just you know, need to ask I was actually, more. <laughs> I was wondering if this is something after we've tapped the joint mm-hmm. and ruled out I think out there's, there's some truth that, to that point. Um, I think always, you know, important and especially important in rheumatology is to let the patient tell the story a bit, yeah. mm-hmm. you know. And I think try not to focus in on too many laser questions quickly, you know, and I, I appreciate that must be challenging in emergency medicine where you don't have the luxury of so much time, whereas I have an hour for a consult and you probably have very little time with each patient. So it's also partly our culture and yeah. generally how our minds work. So, <laughs> but give the patient a chance to at least pr- tell you something about what's been going on. And obviously you're looking for not like there, I've been fine until just three days ago, usually if, if the answer is rheumatoid arthritis or, or a chronic rheumatic disease, there would be some symptoms preceding that. Mm. So that's one thing. Obviously, you're going to, if you have a patient who's got a, a swollen knee that's, that's really inflamed of basically acute onset, even if there are some other joint complaints, you're going to have to consider the possibility of infection, right? So yeah. it's appropriate to, to evaluate, to tap the joint, to you know, run a cell count, crystals, thinking about crystal arthritis, because that would be a, a big consideration in patients like this. Uh, and yes, to get a gram stain in aerobic culture or other cultures if those, they seem appropriate to, to evaluate for sem- uh, septic arthritis and a, to cover that patient appropriately at first if that's high in the differential diagnosis. Patients with RA don't usually present with high fevers. They may, but high fevers, especially above, say, you know, 102 degrees Fahrenheit, would be quite uncommon as a presenting manifestation of rheumatoid arthritis. Now, some other diseases would be, you know, uh, like I said, lupus, for example, can present with fevers. Ankyovasculitis can present with fevers. So there are other examples where that's different. But rheumatoid can do it, but less likely to cause high fevers. So I think if you're seeing that, you need to be thinking about what else could be going on here beyond just rheumatoid arthritis. You know, I think those are questions. How, how else to kind of get at it? You know, I think, you know, like I said, you're going to have to address the issue of septic arthritis first. Mm-hmm. And that's always going to be an important consideration. And there isn't any one question that's going to tease that apart. It's more as you kind of do the workup and you're not finding evidence of infection that those other questions are going to become even more important. At a very fundamental level, what is happening in rheumatoid arthritis? Right. Rheumatoid arthritis is, uh, I mean, it's an autoimmune disease that is mediated by lots of different parts of the immune system. We could say that fundamentally, rheumatoid arthritis is caused by misfunction of the adaptive part of the immune system. 
So if you remember, obviously there's innate immunity, mm -hmm. which is more you know macrophages and dendritic cells and natural killer cells that protect against different types of uh, microorganisms and, and insults to the body. The adaptive immune system is more developed of a very specific response to uh, eliminate, for example, the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, in, in people who have been exposed to develop a T cell and a B cell mediated response that will uh, eradicate the infection or at least control it. So the problem with rheumatoid arthritis is due to a combination of environmental and genetic factors. T cells and eventually B cells lose tolerance and see modified antigens in joints as if they're foreign. It turns out that uh, the major gene that predisposes to rheumatoid arthritis is HLA-DRB1, which is a HLA molecule that forms the basis of the uh, antigen presentation that is presenting peptides to T cells. And it turns out that those HLA alleles are believed to be able to present citrullinated proteins and peptides to T cells. And in that context, an autoimmune response is formulated to citrullinated peptides. And that is the fundamental crux of rheumatoid arthritis, is the development of that autoimmune response. Are citrullinated peptides, is that unique to joints? Where are we finding those? Citrullination is a, is a process that has to do with, um, and it's stimulated by lots of different uh, inflammatory conditions. Even smoking is known to lead to citrullination of peptides in the lungs. And we're understanding more about what is the physiological function of citrullination, which is this process of a, a post-translational modification of arginine residues on peptides and proteins in the body. Probably has something to do with clearance of uh, inflamed tissues or maybe the immune response to different types of infections. Um, so citrullination is normal. It's not the problem. What the problem is, is developing T cells and B cells that recognize citrullinated peptides. And that is, is a distinctly abnormal situation that leads to rheumatoid arthritis. Okay. We know that citrullinated peptides can be found in lots of different tissues, and there is evidence that um, certain antibodies that target uh, specific citrullinated epitopes are associated with different types of lung disease. This has also been of some concern, at least theoretically, with regard to the heart disease that occurs in rheumatoid arthritis, specifically different types of uh, heart failure with pre preserved ejection fraction. Mm. And so we're learning more and more about how these specific types of anti-citrullinated protein uh, immune responses correlate with different clinical manifestations of rheumatoid arthritis. But I think it's probably enough for colleagues in emergency medicine to remember that that's the basis of rheumatoid arthritis is for at least the major subtype uh, is autoimmunity to citrullinated peptides. And so the anti-CCP test Sorry to butt in here, but in case you were wondering what anti-CCP is, it stands for anti-cyclic citrullinated peptide. Okay, let's get back. That you can order in the emergency room, although you probably don't order that much, but that is a very specific diagnostic test for rheumatoid arthritis. The other diagnostic test for rheumatoid arthritis is rheumatoid factor. That is less specific, and we can see our positive rheumatoid factor in many different conditions with healthy aging, chronic infections like hepatitis C or tuberculosis or, you know, lots of other types of infections, monoclonal uh, gammopathies or, you know, patients with different plasma cell dyscrasias may, may have that. And that's the, the, the short list of things that, where you can see a rheumatoid factor. Uh, but when positive and someone with chronic arthritis, it supports the diagnosis of, of rheumatoid arthritis potentially. I think that's a great transition to a question that many of my colleagues may share with me, which is, if I have a patient and uh, I, I am thoughtful enough to ask these questions and really delve into the history, and I, I develop a clinical suspicion for this, are there things that I can do to expedite their workup 
for you. Um, so if I if I get that appointment in, is there something I can order that will help you narrow it down when they arrive at your office? Or am I going to mess things up by ordering a bunch of tests you don't need? Great question. I think that, first of all, documenting kind of what you're seeing is important. One thing is a good description of the physical exam because we will look for that. And I think having some comfort to say, is there any swelling? Because swelling is a really important finding that may come and go. And sometimes, um, especially if any treatments are used, that might cover cover up that manifestation, which may be an important diagnostic finding. So what I'm hearing is my normal exam template is not adequate. Yeah, <laughs> this is not ideal. <laughs> but I'm hopeful, yeah. I think. Maybe we can learn from you about what your physical exam documentation would look like for a patient with classic RA, and maybe we can emulate that. Yeah, absolutely. I I think cardinal signs of arthritis, you know, would be the following. One is tenderness, actually documenting tenderness at the joint line. And so in a podcast, it's a little hard to show you exactly what I'm doing, but you can imagine yourself pressing, you know, on the the joint confines of the wrist joint, for example. Mm -hmm. And normally that isn't tender. You know, normally that doesn't elicit any symptoms. We use enough pressure that would blanch your fingernails. We're not talking about, you know, uh, enough pressure that would hurt a normal person, right? You're squeezing their arm really hard or something like that. That's a great example. Um, I hadn't thought about that. You know, enough pressure to, to blanch your fingernail. And if that much pressure on the line of the joint, for example, the wrist or a metacarpal phalangeal joint, that's MCP or the PIP joint of the fingers, um, if that's tender, then that's an important sign, okay? So documenting which joints are tender, and we literally go joint by joint, PIP to the index finger, PIP to the, the long finger, and, and so forth, and going through the MCPs in the same way. Um, you know, you can target the areas where the patient's having the most complaints. We In, in the clinic, we'll do a 68 joint count, right? So we'll oh document gosh. tenderness and swelling of 68 joints, and that goes beyond what, uh, you know, an emergency medicine physician should be able to do. But I think it's more important to understand the concept that tenderness is an important finding and knowing where what joints are tender can be helpful. Swelling is more important. Swelling is an objective um, sign of inflammation of the synovium of a joint, right? And that's the, the pathology that we're trying to identify is synovitis, inflammation of the synovium. You know, looking at the hands and wrists and feet, for example, those are prime sites for swelling in someone with early rheumatoid arthritis, and trying to document that is, is important. What you're feeling for is in, it's something that's almost you can't see, you can feel, right? And so the podcast is a good, good model there. You're trying to say, is there bogginess? Is there thickening of the joint, or does it feel kind of boggy, doughy? Definitely a, a sign of potential synovitis. A shorthand for tenderness of MCP joints is just to kind of put your hand around the the whole hand and do kind of a gentle squeeze. That's called MCP squeeze, and it's not very specific, but it is sensitive to tenderness. And so that's when we can elicit elicit tenderness of the MCPs or of the MTP joints, right? And so that may be at least a good place to start. Large joint swelling, is there an effusion of the elbow? Is there an effusion of the knee? And that may be rheumatoid arthritis too, but we ordinarily wouldn't wouldn't expect to see uh, only a, a knee effusion. Rheumatoid arthritis is a polyarticular condition that is, you know, inj- involves more than five joints typically, at least with tenderness, if not swelling in, in multiple joints. So something, you know, to remember. Um, pain with range of motion. Sometimes you can flex the wrist gently or passively uh, abduct and externally rotate the shoulder. And that, you know, may elicit tenderness. And that um, stress pain can be a marker also of, of inflammation. 
by itself in one shoulder, that might be a sign of rotator cuff involvement or a fracture or something else. But when you're seeing that in both shoulders, you know, and you also have findings in the hands and wrists or the feet, that's contributing to the idea that there is a polyarticular condition. And rheumatoid arthritis would be one of the prime things on the differential diagnosis, especially if it's more of a chronic condition lasting more than six weeks. So I think those are some things I would, I would try to document uh, in your clinical notes. So to repeat back what I'm hearing, when I go in the room, I'm going to pause and increase my aperture to a number of conditions. When I take my history, I'm really focused on, is this a, an acute thing that started three days ago, or are they here for joint pain? And, and this episode started a few days ago, but it's actually been waxing and waning for some time. And is it uh, a monoarthropathy, or is it... Uh, has it involved many joints, and particularly small joints of the hands and feet over a long time? My, I'm going to be really detailed in my physical exam and use pressure that would blanch a nail bed at, at the joints in the hands and the feet and really try and uh, be thorough in documenting that. I can do active and passive range of motion of those joints um, to see what elicits discomfort. And I'm going to be thorough about documenting edema, which I would say my documentation is not very clean on that. I, I say finger swollen, um, and I can be a lot more thorough. And I could probably also use uh, here at Mayo, we have a, a Mayo Clinic photo app, but uh, some sort of similar app to, to document that so that you have that record later. That's incredibly helpful. I, I love the the force of, of blanching the finger because I'm always thinking anything I push is going gonna, is gonna to hurt, but you're exactly right with that level of force. I don't elicit pain normally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. just a, one clarification, the, the term edema is somewhat uh, challenging. A lot of times I think we use the term edema, at least in rheumatology, more as extraticular you know, fluid. Um, in the soft tissues, and there may be edema, certainly. The swelling of the joints is not edema. It's really synovial thickening is, is underlying that. So just, uh, you know, because I see that term used, and, and maybe just to clarify of the different, you know, connotations, because swelling could be edema, yes, or it could be that it's actually of the joint, which wouldn't be edema. It could be a fusion. That would be the, the term we would use, or, or just synovial hypertrophy or thickening. But absolutely, those are, you know, I think you said it very well, Alex, and kind of summarizing those thoughts about history and exam findings. We've talked about the history, the exam, some of the blood tests that we could consider. In terms of imaging, should we be reaching for something other than x-rays to image these patients? I think it's a great question. I mean, I, the question of imaging, the first question is probably, is there a differential diagnosis of fracture or something like that for you all? And I would think that the main purpose of getting radiographs would be to evaluate if there is a fracture or, or some other process like that. Septic arthritis, we want to know uh, early on if there's any destructive change and if, you know that might help with that evaluation. Uh, in terms of the, if the issue is chronic and they're coming in, X-rays may not help that much. We do it in the clinic because it's important to say if there's damage early on. And, and yes, that may help with the differential diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis versus alternative forms of arthritis like gout or psoriatic arthritis that could, that could have a different pattern of destructive change. What might help more in terms of diagnosis is ultrasound. And so I know you all do a lot of ultrasound. It may be too much to, to, to train emergency medicine physicians in, in diagnosing synovitis, for example. But on the other hand, you know, for looking at effusion, you could probably distinguish if this is a knee effusion versus um, 
you know, swelling or, or around the knee, for example, or a prepatellar bursitis that, that might be in scope. We do use both sonography and also MRI in challenging cases to try to determine if this looks, you know, consistent with uh, synovial hypertrophy or effusion, or if this is some other, you know, process. We also try to distinguish, and there are some features on both sonography and MRI that can d- distinguish between just chronic thickening as opposed to active inflammation. And so on ultrasound, that's using power Doppler. And so so, or actually any Doppler, but power Doppler in particular is, is sensitive to low flow states from um, new vessel formation in, in the synovium. And again, the idea is if you see blood flow, then it's an active inflammatory process. MRI, we can use in contrast enhancement. And so if we see the synovium enhancing, that's an indicator of inflammation. I would think that you'd probably want to be, you know, not ordering that all the time. I don't think it's necessary to get that in every patient in the ER. There may be situations in which, you know, you need to understand better if what's what's affected and thinking about, again, is this an acute arthritis or is there osteomyelitis or other features? And, and maybe there's a role for that in some cases. Ultrasound may, as I said, in summary, may be occasionally helpful to you all for is this uh, an articular process or is there you know something going on outside of the joint? We're uh, big fans of ultrasound. Actually, Venk did an ultrasound fellowship and is cool. one of our, our big ultrasound teachers in the department. Are you doing a lot of point-of-care ultrasound in your practice? And do you have any tips and tricks that you would share about how to ultrasound small joints like hands? And- sure, yeah, we, we um, have an ultrasound practice it's mostly for procedure guidance, although we have done a lot of research projects involving ultrasound for arthritis assessments and looking to expand into the, the space of doing synovial biopsies, so ultrasound-guided synovial biopsies is something that is being ex- expanding in rheumatology and myself and a colleague are going to do some training to be able to do that soon. We train our fellows in this and our fellows are integrated from the first week of fellowship basically in our ultrasound practice. We do take referrals and a lot of times the question is, you know, should we be injecting the wrist or is it one of the tendon compartments that's the issue? And so we can distinguish, you know, and target the pathology to get the best outcome of the procedure. Um, so those are ways in which we, we use ultrasound in our practice. In terms of uh, imaging for small joints, you know, a lot of times you want to have orthogonal planes. So you're, if we're looking at a small joint like a finger joint, you'll look longitudinally with the transducer oriented in long axis to the finger on the dorsal aspect. And we'll also look in transverse plane. And it's important to see the pathology in two planes to verify you know what you're talking about. And we would be looking for is the grayscale hypertrophy. Uh, as I said earlier, we can look turn the, turn the Doppler on and look for is there any flow, any, any evidence of Doppler signal within the, the synovium. And important to be careful about, there could be a lot of artifact with, with ultrasound in general and certainly with Doppler. So you have to kind of get some experience knowing how to adjust that. But that's something we look for. On small joints, you need to get a lot of gel because it's better, easier to float the, 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 the transducer and get greater sensitivity to uh, for power Doppler detection. So those are some ways we would do that. Okay, excuse me for butting in yet again. I want to take a brief dive into the MSK ultrasound of arthritic diseases. I'm going to include two papers in the show notes. One is on the grayscale hypersensitivity that Dr. Davis mentions, and one is an overview of how ultrasound can be used in differentiating different types of arthritic conditions. This paper also has some practical power Doppler advice and pictures that you might find helpful. We will also include a YouTube video link on this topic of MSK ultrasound for the evaluation of RA. It is a long video, and I found the content most helpful around the 20-minute mark. 
You should be aware it does appear to be an industry-sponsored video. We are not endorsing their equipment, the company itself, or making any money in any way from this. It's just that this video seemed to do a pretty good job, especially around that 20-minute mark of clarifying the procedure, at least for me and maybe for you too. In my opinion, imaging small joints can be challenging because of the short distance to the target of interest, as well as the narrow surface area with which you have to image. Using a water bath, I find, is a great way to get beautiful pictures and allows me to keep the transducer off the finger, for example, by a small amount, thus allowing the target area to be more in focus on the machine or in the focal zone of your equipment. Alternatively, using a lot of gel to keep a little bit of distance can be helpful, or even a bag of saline or a water-filled exam glove can be helpful too. Just be sure to get the air out of your device and use gel between all the surface contacts. When viewing, you'll want to have orthogonal or perpendicular planes just as John mentions. Get the views of the joint without any Dopplers. Look for hypoechoic or anechoic fluid in the joint, near the joint, etc. Try also and identify the synovial membrane if you can. The grayscale hypersensitivity that Dr. Davis was talking about will be graded from 0 to 3, or none, mild, moderate, and severe synovitis. These are subjective gradings from the grayscale alone, and in some cases, the dark area of synovium can be confused with a joint effusion or vice versa. Sometimes compression can distinguish what is an inflamed synovial membrane and what is actually a joint effusion. Basically, by compressing the area, you might see fluid displace back into the joint, for example. Let's talk about power Doppler. He mentions this, and admittedly, I've never used it for this purpose, but it doesn't seem like it would be too far out of scope for us. Activate power Doppler on your machine. Adjust the settings using the pulp space of your patient's finger, such that about one-third of that tissue is showing signal. That's at least what is published in the rheumatology literature as a standard to make sure that your signal settings are uniform against everyone else's. Use those same settings, then, to image the target tendon, joint, or synovium, and you can see if there's increased uptake in that area. I have to admit, I have not used ultrasound to evaluate arthritis before, and I am looking forward to doing it. If you get to it first, can you tweet us or email us? Share some pictures. We would love to see how it goes, how you're using it, and hear about how it's incorporated into your practice. Maybe you're already doing this, and we'd love to hear that as well. Okay, let's get back to the discussion. So we've considered some imaging, and if we have a suspicion for another acute process, such as a fracture, we might get an x-ray and recognize that other imaging, such as point-of-care ultrasound, might be helpful, uh, outpatient MRI. If we are going to order labs, we've talked about two labs. Uh, frequently, we're asked to order things like SED rates, CRP, CBC, electrolytes. Are any of, is any of that really going to be helpful to you if the primary thing we're worried about is rheumatoid arthritis? It's very appropriate to get those types of labs. So a standard workup for rheumatoid arthritis would be a CBC with differential. We probably usually would get a CMP because you are wanting to make sure is there something out, you know, is the calcium very high, for example. With regard to some of the drugs we use, you want to know if there was a significant transaminase uh, elevation. You'd want to obviously know about kidney function that would affect our decision-making about whether we should be using non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Is there other drug toxicity we should be aware of? And so we would generally check those things. The inflammatory markers are helpful. I would, I would say that, you know, helpfully when elevated, a normal C-rectal protein and rate does not rule out rheumatoid arthritis. And it's important to note 
that about 40 to 50 percent of patients with uh, early RA will present with normal uh, acute phase reactants. Interesting. So we shouldn't rule out the possibility of rheumatoid arthritis or most rheumatic diseases actually with, uh, with normal inflammatory markers. But when they're high, you know, obviously the suspicion is going to go up. In fact, unfortunately, there's no one blood test that rules out rheumatoid arthritis at all. There is the entity called seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. It is more challenging to evaluate those patients, and they tend, actually, I have some data that we published with our team uh, several years ago that people with antibody-negative rheumatoid arthritis, of course, naturally get diagnosed much later than people who don't because we're having to kind of wait for more significant physical signs to develop until we can be sure. And, and this is one of the big gaps that still exists in rheumatology. So that leads to both under-diagnosis as well as overdiagnosis of seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. The overdiagnosis are things like, for example, polyarticular gout getting called seronegative RA, and we and we we find that in clinic. Calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease, more more commonly known as pseudogout, probably to colleagues in emergency medicine, uh, may be misdiagnosed uh, as seronegative rheumatoid arthritis as well. And so something to be mindful of when you're seeing patients is, um, especially if they have seronegative RA, could this be something a little different? Do you see much crossover in the synovial fluid uh, between patients who have rheumatoid arthritis who also have crystalline arthropathies? It happens. Um, for a long time, we've, we've sort of said that it's unlikely to see both rheumatoid arthritis and gout. And uh, there has been some conjecture uh, in the past in rheumatology circles that maybe the cytokine milieu is different and sort of leads to uh, lower likelihood of, of gout for some reason. I'm not sure that's true or not. Uh, we definitely see people who have gout and, and RA, not as commonly as maybe you would think, but uh, we, we, you can see that. The synovial fluid analysis would look different, and so we could talk briefly about that. Most people, you know, with osteoarthritis as, as the starting place, if you tap their joint, by definition, the synovial white blood cell count, or it's, it's usually called the total nucleated cell count, would be less than 1,000, okay? Um, normal is less than 150, and a lot of times they're in the 200 to 300 range. Maybe up to 1,000 is kind of a top end of reasonable. Usually people with rheumatoid arthritis have cell counts that are above 2,000, maybe in the, in the range of 2,000 to 15,000 yeah, in general. Crystal arthritis may be that low or it could be substantially higher than that. And you all probably see that sometimes with acute gout or pseudogout, you can have nucleated cell counts that are above 50,000 cells per microliter, maybe even 100. Now, obviously, in those cases, we're getting concerned about the possibility of infection either as the primary problem or maybe a concomitant process. And obviously, looking for uh, gram stain and, more importantly, aerobic culture to, to determine that. Definitely don't forget to get the crystals because we definitely see people, and I've seen people in, admitted to St. Mary's Hospital where we've washed out their wrist in an older person with concern for septic arthritis. Nobody got crystals, but I'm concerned about pseudogout looking at it now because cultures are all negative and there is marked chondrocalcinosis of the tri triangular fibrocartilage complex of the wrist. And so it's a great story for pseudogout. And so one of the things that it's important to, to not miss is remember to get crystals on synova fluid. Let's take our patient to the next level. So we've done our basic workup and we continue to have a suspicion for underlying rheumatoid arthritis. And maybe this patient does have a diagnosis of that and comes in because they're having a pain flare and haven't been able to get in to see a provider. What would be our first and second line agents to help address their pain in the emergency department and for the next 
you know, two or three weeks until they can get in and be reassessed? Yeah, great question and, and somewhat of a challenging one. Pain is a big problem in, in this patient population. Persistent pain is very common. The development of concomitant fibromyalgia in addition to rheumatoid arthritis is very common. I would say that a lot of these people have mixed pain states whereby a lot of the pain is still nociceptive and they may have ongoing inflammatory nociceptive pain, but they also have this type of pain that's called nosoplastic pain, which is really due to either peripheral or central sensitization. The terms are changing some and the, the new preferred term is probably nosoplastic. But either way, you know, that type of pain won't always get better with inflammation control, and it's a challenge for us. Uh, in, in general, we'd be thinking about, for acute pain relief, trying to think about anti-inflammatory therapies. And so one of the first things you'd have to think about would be uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. I think sometimes, and I'm not sure what your experience is, I think in the emergency department, a lot of uh, emergency providers find Toradol to have some value, and I think that that's probably an appropriate thing to consider. It's magic. Um, makes makes things better. It seems to work well and for, for acute inflammatory type pain. And it's nice not to have to use steroids all the time. Yeah. Uh, especially when we might also be concerned about infection. Have to obviously watch for toxicities and kidney function. And you all know know about that very well. So we use short-acting NSAIDs like ibuprofen and naproxen, indomethacin. And there's obviously a variety of things that, that could be used to achieve steady state quickly over, you know, four to five half-lives, you know, a couple of days and and, uh, and seeing significant pain improvement. So that's something to consider as well. Do I expect that this is going to last a couple of days or longer than that? Well, I, I think it depends a lot on the patient's age and comorbidities. Yeah. I think in, in the standard age of, of a patient with rheumatoid arthritis, the average age of onset nowadays is about 57 in our, in our practice. So we're talking about people, you know, 50s, maybe early 60s when you might be seeing them and older, but let's take that age group for for a moment, say mid-50s to mid-60s. I think NSAIDs would be appropriate for for three weeks. You know, a lot of it is about do they have a normal EGFR to start with? Mm -hmm. That's probably an important thing to consider. I think the folks that are having EGFR less than 60, we need to be more cautious and maybe be looking for alternative treatment approaches. So, okay, normal, basically normal kidney function, um, blood pressure is okay, et cetera. Then I think that will be reasonable. I think it's important to counsel that if they're having a lot of any, any intolerance or stomach upset, to try to have them use over-the-counter omeprazole or pentoprazole, uh, well, or to prescribe pentoprazole or some other PPI. You could use famotidine or something uh, mm-hmm. else. If, if you wish, and that would be helpful and, and protect against NSAID gastropathy. Um, so a lot of that's that, that counseling and education is important. But the reality is we use a lot of NSAIDs in rheumatology in, in situations like this. So what about the patient where you're more worried about toxicity and, and risk of NSAID-associated complications, or if you've got a history that those aren't working, right? And they the, tried um, the ibuprofen at home, yeah. and now I have to think of something new. So then the, the, naturally the question is going to come about what about steroids? Okay, specifically glucocorticoids, prednisone, methylprednisolone, oral, intravenous, I suppose intraarticular, right? So if you have one joint, then then you can think about an intraarticular glucocorticoid injection if there are no other signs of infection or that's already been ruled out. Commonly, because this is polyarticular, we're talking about systemic. And so what would an appropriate taper prednisone be? So we would say if, you know, if, if the diagnosis is, at this point we think it's an exacerbation or flare of rheumatoid arthritis, what I t- typically would do is say give prednisone a dose of around 20 milligrams a day. There's a lot of good data that between 20 and 60 milligrams a day, there's not a lot of additional advantage, but certainly there's greater toxicity. 
So I think in general, trying to not go all the way to 60 milligrams, but focusing more around 20 is probably appropriate. Uh, now, there are exceptional cases where I will use more. And I think obviously it depends a bit on the disease activity and severity and history. What if they've, you have a history that 20 doesn't work well and you need 40 to kind of get on top of it. Okay, so we have to individualize, but as a, as a general rule, try to get, you know, use dose ranges uh, of around 20 and then taper maybe over two to even up to four weeks, depending on how long uh, the rheumatology follow appointment is out. That's incredibly helpful. And so I I really appreciate that perspective of the, the lowest dose to get the job done. So we're talking about 20 milligrams of prednisone a day. And again, so the time course of this, maybe a couple of weeks and then tapering over two weeks, is that kind of how, how you structure it? There's a lot of art that goes into prednisone yeah. prescribing. Yeah. There is no <laughs> one taper that works in, for all patients, right? And so it's helpful to actually get the history of what prednisone, how have you usually done it? Yeah. Because a lot of these right. patients certainly have experience, right? By the time you're seeing them, they've, they've been treated with prednisone before. They know what worked and what didn't work. And so I, I think trusting in that is, is helpful within reason, right? If they say it takes a, 100 milligrams of methoprednisone for three, three months, well, we're not going <laughs> to go with that. But, um, but on the other hand, I think the patients will provide helpful information to, to guide. One thing I have done, in fact, I just prescribed a prednisone taper for a patient of mine just, uh, just yesterday, where I did 20 milligrams daily for one week, and then 15 for a week, 10 for a week, 5 for a week, and then off. And that's been a good approach for her. Fantastic. If I taper over 10 days, she gets a rebound and it gets worse again. Um, she's had pretty difficult to treat rheumatoid arthritis. And so, you know, and that's probably one of the longer tapers I would use. There are data nowadays. In fact, the most recent 2021 American College of Rheumatology guidelines for management of rheumatoid arthritis have conditionally advised to try to not use prednisone. Hmm. And so times are changing. Uh, there is greater appreciation now about the long-term adverse effects of glucocorticoids. Those are well-known, but we could just highlight infection, clearly, osteoporosis and fractures, higher incidence of cardiovascular disease events and people treated with long-term prednisone, fragile skin, poor healing, you know, so the list, the list goes on. Um, it has to be balanced against the significant efficacy. And sometimes the only thing we can do quickly is give glucocorticoids and that works well and fast for the majority of patients. So, so kind of, a, you know, the classic benefits versus harm situation. But the ACR has tried to say, we need to try to be using less glucocorticoids. That's worth noting, but you know, people are coming in the emergency room, we have to provide some therapy to, to help them and prevent them from coming back tomorrow and next week. Um, so it's, it's certainly a balance. It's our job in rheumatology to find what are the steroid sparing therapies we need to be considering and try to transition them, for example, from methotrexate and hydroxychloroquine and ongoing prednisone that's 10 milligrams a day to try to enable tapering and then substitute prednisone use for other biologic or targeted synthetic DMARDs that we know how to use. And, and oftentimes they're very good trade-off in terms of benefit versus risk as compared to prednisone. You just mentioned DMARDs, and that's something that came up as I was preparing for our discussion. Mm -hmm. Can you help us understand what that stands for and what medicines fall within the DMARDs classification? Yeah, DMARDs is a term that especially applies to inflammatory arthritis. The term isn't used as much, for example, for lupus or vasculitis, but disease-modifying antiromatic drugs, that's what the acronym DMARD would stand for. They're termed that because these medications modify the disease process, inhibit inflammation, and prevent structural damage on x-rays. 
And that's really what disease modification means. Of course, it also means to control the signs and symptoms of, of the disease process uh, and help us achieve the major goal, which is low disease activity or remission uh, of the inflammatory process in the joints and, and bodily systems. So that's what a DMARD is. There are three main categories of that nowadays. There are what we call conventional synthetic DMARDs, and those are the drugs that have been around for a long time, like methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine, sulfasalazine, a drug called leflunamide, and those are our conventional synthetic DMARDs. There also are biologic DMARDs. If you've heard of the biologic response modifiers or just biologics, affectionately, we, we call them that in rheumatology very often. And so this is where we come into the TNF inhibitor class. So adalimumab, etanercept, infliximab, golimumab, sirtuizumab, there are actually five in that category that's been around since the late 1990s. Um, then we have abatacept, which is uh, a T-cell co-stimulation blocker. I'm not sure if you want me to mention brand names, I can, um, but otherwise those are the generic type medication names. We also have um, uh, the IL-6 receptor antagonists, and so there's a medication called tocilizumab. It's been used a lot for COVID. Maybe you've been familiar with seeing it used for acute uh, and, and, and serious COVID-19 infection. There's also cerilumab. So we have two IL-6 receptor blockers that we use in rheumatoid arthritis. There's enikinra, which is kinaret. Enikinra is a neuroleukin-1 blocker that's, that's used in rheumatology. And then rituximab for B-cell depletion therapy. And then we have two drugs that we, are actually three drugs rather, that are called targeted synthetic DMARDs. And these are really Janus kinase pathway inhibitors or JAK inhibitors. And so we also have tofacitinib, baricitinib, and upadacitinib. And so that rounds out the full class of medications that are called DMARDs. And or as I called them at the beginning, a list of medications the patient is on that I haven't heard of. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things you would see there. And I, obviously, that's a complex uh, array of medications that really require rheumatology expertise to deal with. But I think being aware of the general categories is probably helpful as you kind of look at those and, and maybe get some sense of the risk profile associated with them because there are differences there. That would be very helpful. At the yeah. end of the day, they all have uh, infections, right? Uh, these are all drugs that inhibit the immune response and, and raise the risk of infections. I would say the oral older drugs that are called conventional synthetic DMARDs have lower risks of serious infections, whereas we see higher risks with biologic and targeted synthetic DMARDs that I just mentioned to you. And so a little bit of a deeper dive on that. So if we talk about the common DMARDs of methotrexate, sulfasalazine, leflunamide, and hydroxychloroquine, what types of side effects or issues would I see with those that might be present in a patient in the ED? Absolutely. So I start with methotrexate because it's far and away the most commonly prescribed first-line medication. And we often use that drug in ongoing fashion in combination with other biologic and, and targeted drugs. Methotrexate, and like all the oral drugs, we tend to see a lot of gastrointestinal side effects. And so, you know, nausea, even abdominal pain, diarrhea, these, these things can occur. Sometimes people have a lot of just generally feeling wiped out, um, fatigue, lethargy, and some cognitive uh, symptoms, you know, just kind of feeling out of it, blah, you know, symptoms like that. I think something that, that's more serious to be aware of is obviously myelosuppression. So you can see leukopenia and even pancytopenia in, in people with rheumatoid arthritis. The risk is greater when we're have, when, in, in patients with chronic kidney disease, right? So impaired kidney clearance, and we can see issues with that. And so we try to avoid using methotrexate at all in anyone with 
with EGFR of less than 30. In OSCE, we're pretty cautious in people with an EGFR, I'd say, less than 45. And we, we think about minimizing the dose and so forth. But sometimes, you know, is it better to use methotrexate in someone with EGFR 42, or should we put them on a biologic? And obviously, we have some competing risks there. So it is still used, and so being aware of that's important. The other issue is drug interactions. As a brief anecdote, uh, one of the patients I, I saw get the sickest from methotrexate was a patient who actually had healthy kidneys, a young guy who was on a high dose of methotrexate by a suffocating injection of 25 milligrams a week. And he went into the emergency room with features of cellulitis. I don't remember exactly the rationale, but was put on high dose Bactrim intravenously and, and developed uh, pancytopenia and mucositis within, within uh, three to, about three or four days. And so that's a classic interaction, right? Uh, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole with, with methotrexate, this combined uh, antifoliate effect can really cause significant issues with pancytopenia and, and also mucositis. So being aware of that's important. That's, oh yeah, I, that is a mistake. Uh, I could have made this week without knowing. And so I did not know that that was a clear interaction. I didn't either, but I'm sure Epic. It will probably find it, you know, and like I said, it's especially high dose for infectious diseases. We do a lot of PJP prophylaxis and and we can get away with if the the methotrexate dose is only moderate and we're only doing uh, like a single strength, you know, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole daily. Although we still watch it, but we, we'd get away with that. But we're talking about high-dose therapy. That's, that's where the issue tends to, tends to be seen. They were, in my mind, this provider is probably trying to cover for MRSA. And so thinking about other common cellulitis antibiotics, if I'm covering for strep, cephalosporin, MRSA, doxycycline, things like that, are there similar interactions with all of those? I would say less. Uh, a common one, moxicillin clavulanate mm-hmm. uh, can interact with methotrexate, and so being aware of that. In general, we advise people to hold methotrexate they're going on antibiotics, and that might be a simple rule of thumb to remember. If you have an infection that warrants antibiotics, hold the methotrexate, okay? If nothing else, we're trying to allow the immune system respond appropriately, and also trying to avoid these types of drug interactions. So that it's might really be helpful. a useful rule of thumb just to remember. The, uh, the other category of medications you mentioned were the biologics. Mm-hmm. If we compare the, the side effects and adverse events that we would have to watch for in that group, how does that compare and contrast to methotrexate? Yes, uh, great question. Um, I would think the, the first thing is that we do not tend to see much in the way of gastrointestinal nuisance-type side effects, right? So we d- we're not seeing like, oh, nausea or vomiting or diarrhea or anything like that. The difference is, one, in infection risk. And so one thing that if you have patients coming in with fevers and they've been exposed to, for example, a TNF inhibitor, then right away you have some a differential diagnosis that would include you know, atypical infections, disseminated fungal infections like histoplasmosis, of course, disseminated TB, you know, and thinking about that. TNF inhibitors are, are especially um, uh, associated with intracellular type infections, so those types of infections that can, that can do that. Sometimes infections are advanced in people when they come in. Rather than just having pulmonary TB, they could have a disseminated TB. And, and same thing with histoplasmosis or coccidioidomycosis or any type of of, uh, of fungal infection in that, in that class. In, infectious pneumonia, bloodstream infections, skin and soft tissue infections are common in people with rheumatoid arthritis and lead to a lot of the morbidity, especially in advanced RA. So I think being mindful of that, right? The probability of serious infection is simply increased if you have a patient with rheumatoid arthritis that, on that kind of medication class that's coming into the ED. When we think about medications that make somebody more susceptible, 
should we think of this on the level of chemotherapy? Or is it not quite that? Probably isn't quite that level, no. I think that um, even in COVID, right, the, our patients were not considered to be as immune suppressed as, for example, the transplant patients or maybe chemotherapy patients. And there's, I think there's a greater range. There's a greater spectrum. Many people who, you know, have, have been generally healthy and then have rheumatoid arthritis and have to go on methotrexate and that TNF inhibitor, the good thing is the vast majority never experience serious infections. I tend to quote, if I'm looking at a patient with, with rheumatoid arthritis, they've been on methotrexate and now we're having to add, for example, adalimumab. It could be any of the TNF inhibitors. The story would basically be the same. The risk of a, a serious infection over the course of one year is on the order of about 2 to 3% for the average sort of low-risk individual. Uh, there's a lot of different risk factors that would go into infection risk. Part of that is aging, and, and as we age, the risk of about everything goes up, and certainly infection, it goes up. Type 2 diabetes, you know, chronic kidney disease, chronic liver disease, the, the lung disease, these things all add to infection risk, and so we'd have to kind of scale that. There are calculators that can help you estimate that risk. Probably not practical for you all to use. It's not really that practical for me to use. But I think you get the idea, right, to, to assess a patient and, th- and think through that. So, so not the level necessarily of, of full-blown, you know, four-drug chemotherapy. It depends on the patient and comorbidities. And I think that's really helpful because the risk is actually high from our point of view. You know, our patients come in, and I think of it as an airplane pilot declaring an emergency. They're saying something's really wrong, something's different today, and I'm here, and I, I don't know what's going on. And a 3% chance of a serious infection over the year that's really going to elevate it on my diagnosis. My other follow-up question, you mentioned the susceptibility to alternative pathogens other than bacteria and viruses like fungi, et cetera. Should we be adding specific tests on synovial fluid and CSF for patients who are on these medications? Not routinely, only if there's something systemic that's suspected. If in a rheumatoid patient in, in the outpatient clinic, you know, if, if there's a dominant joint, you know, we, we talk about a, a sort of the, the hot joint, right? There's a background of, of chronic arthritis, but this one joint is really flaring up. That's a, a little bit of a risk factor for infection. But we generally probably just get aerobic bacteria, you know, um, and not necessarily send all kinds of things unless there's been other concern, some other complicated story, foreign body, you know, chronic symptoms with negative cultures before. And then maybe we get into looking at mycobacterial infection and doing fungal cultures as well. Atypical mycobacteria can cause a lot of uh, funny infections and, and incidentally can masquerade as, as a chronic rheumatoid arthritis or, or spondyl arthritis. I have seen, unfortunately, several cases of disseminated mycobacterium homophilum that can sort of mimic flare of rheumatoid arthritis and or, or psoriatic arthritis, and we keep escalating immune suppression, but they keep getting worse and worse and finally realize, whoa, this is something totally different, and uh, and that's bad news. Whipple's disease, something else that we can, we can miss, and I've seen five cases of Whipple's disease in my career. Um, You've actually I, mentioned Whipple's twice, and uh, the first time, I didn't want to start off by saying I didn't know what that was, but now that we're at the second time, I'm willing to admit <laughs> my my negligence, so tell well, us what my, Whipple's is. My point was, was more just to say that, you know, strange things can, you know, can, can happen and, and be attuned to some symptoms that might uh, suggest something systemic is going on. Whipple's disease is, is a, a chronic infection caused by the bacterium Trophorema whippoli. Unfortunately, uh, it's actually fairly common and probably takes some sort of genetic factors that lead to higher risk. Much more common in men, 
they tend to present early on or have, if they, you know, you don't ever diagnose them at this point, but they have episodic arthritis symptoms. It can behave like palindromic rheumatism. They're seronegative for rheumatoid factor and SCCP. Um, over the years, the arthritis becomes more persistent and more progressive. It can very much become rheumatoid-like. These people usually are misdiagnosed as seronegative rheumatoid arthritis initially, and most of them are actually treated with drugs for rheumatoid arthritis, like methotrexate and even TNF inhibitors and other biologics, and they keep getting worse. And finally, start getting other systemic symptoms. They may have, you know, GI, and so finally getting malabsorption, chronic diarrhea. There can be some ocular symptoms related to chorioretinitis. Um, you know, their their pericarditis can be a feature, and so. You know, I've seen patients misdiagnose as having pericarditis as an extraticular disease manifestation of, of, of RA when they were eventually diagnosed with Whipple's. So red flags there are progressive systemic symptoms, not getting better, and, and um, seronegativity. Again, are we sure this is really RA or is there something different going on? And there are some other infections that can do that. I mentioned mycobacterial infections. But um, be aware of that uh, in, in a patient who seems more toxic than they should be for, for, for rheumatoid arthritis, high-grade fevers, um, and, and getting an orthopedist to, to look at the joint and see if they need to have a tap or even a biopsy uh, is something to consider in those cases because that might be where the diagnosis can be made. You can do order a Whipple's PCR on Synova fluid. So that's something that in the hands of an emergency room physician doing arthrocentesis and tapping the joint if you have a suspicion for there's something really funny going on here, a Whipple's PCR could be helpful. And um, you might be the hero that finally figures it out because sometimes it's tough in uh, outpatient practice. You'd imagine for us, you, you, know, you all see the MIs coming in and you have a standard approach. But for us, we see rheumatoid arthritis is what's coming in. But then there's the one case that you know, is different that it's, it's, it's actually relatively easy to miss. Um, so that's what Whipple's disease is. I'm looking forward to this, my once in a career, one shining moment, ordering the, the Whipple PCR, having it come back positive. That's it's gonna be tomorrow. It is, yeah. it is, it, it has to be tomorrow. I, I've, yeah, I, I've, I've seen, uh, I won't say the exact where the patient came from, but one of my cases was from right in our backyard. So, uh, you know, rare things happen close by too. But infections, and maybe coming back to the, in, the infection business with, with uh, TNF inhibitors, that's an important thing, but not the only serious thing that could present to the emergency room physician. I think another thing would be um, various hypersensitivity reactions. So some of these are infusion therapies. One of the one times I've been called to the emergency room was somebody who, after I, uh, we gave a, a course of infliximab, developed blistering skin lesions. And it turned out to be a rare form of a sort of blistering disorder induced by a TNF inhibitor. And so I, I guess the point is if you're seeing weird reactions, people, um, and you see a biologic drug on their list, think about hypersensitivity. You know, is that, is that possible? You may not be able to make the diagnosis yourself, but at least being aware of it and, and thinking, you know, probably shouldn't send that out or let the patient go on the biologic tomorrow without answering the question, is that a possible culprit for this? And so cutaneous manifestations, pulmonary, et cetera. Now, how can they have a hypersensitivity reaction to a medication that's supposed to blunt their immune response? Yeah, good question. Well, a lot of these drugs are chimeric, and some of them may have some murine sequence, that is mouse protein, right? Um, infliximab is about 25% murine sequence. 
Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why we've tended to see greater risk of hypersensitivity to that drug than some of the newer agents that are, that are fully humanized. There are fewer and fewer drugs that are, that have more, that are more chimeric like that, but it can still occur. And either way, the body may simply see a certain sequence and already have um, T cells or B cells and antibodies that, that, that cross-react with that. And so that's how, you know, it's a, it's a foreign molecule, it's not a self-protein, and the immune system may see it as a foreign thing, and then, you know, that elicits an acute immune response. And, and some of the blunting of the immune response from these drugs takes time. It doesn't happen with one, one, one infusion over hours. The full effects are seen over four to, you know, even up to 12 weeks. So what I've heard so far is that some of the common DMARDs, like methotrexate, think about GI symptoms, reactions to solid organs like kidney injury, liver toxicity, bone marrow suppression. Whereas when we think about the biologics and these MAB drugs, there can be a lot of a a greater risk of infection as well as hypersensitivity reactions that can present in a wide array of clinical syndromes that may be very puzzling. And so we when we have those situations, if we go to the med list and see those drugs, we should be asking, could this be related? Exactly. Yeah. And that's true, pretty much true for all of the, you know, we have IL-17 inhibitors and psoriatic arthritis. That, that's a little bit different. Of course, Crohn's disease patients, and, and they could be on similar, at least TNF inhibitors. So quite a few uh, patients with chronic immune-mediated diseases, biologic therapies are becoming very prevalent. And there are a lot of patients out there on those drugs that, that you'll probably be encountering. I was thinking about, you know, differences between different classes of biologics. Biologics are one, but also I want to say something about the targeted synthetic drugs. They're the JAK inhibitors, right? We know some, some things about those drugs now. One is infection. If, if one thing that calls out with those agents are viral infections. For example, herpes zoster infections that may be disseminated. That's something we see with increased incidence with JAK inhibitors. So think about, you know, zoster in, in patients like that. The other issue are uh, cardiovascular events and also thromboembolism. So some of our recent trials, there was a, a large clinical trial called oral surveillance where uh, there was a long-term study, five years, and it was in, in people treated with tofacitinib versus TNF inhibitors. And so the tofacitinib is this JAK kinase inhibitor. It's one of the three uh, over five years. And there was some excess risk. It was a non-inferiority type trial. We're trying to see if the, if the risk of complications was similar, and they were especially looking at cardiovascular safety and also malignancy safety. And one thing that, that we observed is that there was actually, it was not inferior, or it was, it's always hard to talk about non-inferiority, right? But basically, there was a bit of an excess risk of, inf- of major adverse cardiovascular events, blood clots, infections, and malignancies in the JAK inhibitor group versus the TNF inhibitor group. I think something to be aware of that you may need to think about in JAK inhibitors, if somebody's coming with chest pain, remember they have a higher than average risk of, of PE. And I know you're all probably already over that to begin with, but, but think about the medications. That, that may, may be a predisposing factor to that. Any form of acute cardiovascular syndrome, there was some evidence that, that, that these JAK inhibitors may have some adverse effect there. It's actually been a very controversial thing in rheumatology, and, but this is a randomized trial you know, done for this purpose, and so it's being taken very seriously. The FDA added the black box warning about the higher risk of major adverse cardiovascular events, malignancies, and, and other events uh, with those medications. So. To this point, we've talked about patients with rheumatoid arthritis coming in and potentially having adverse events related to their medications. Another category of patient ED presentations I'm thinking about are patients who might have extra articular 
manifestations of RA or other conditions that are associated with RA like myocardial infarction. Can you talk to us about what you're seeing your patients coming to the emergency department for that are outside of their joint complaints? For sure. They certainly go in for a lot of things we talked about, you know, flares, infections. But yeah, sometimes that when they, the presentation to the ED may be an extraticular disease manifestation. One of the things that we should talk about would be lung disease. And so rheumatoid arthritis is a risk factor for both the development of interstitial lung disease and obstructive lung disease. And so um, the, the obstructive part is, is less well recognized, but increasingly we know that chronic airway inflammation is something we see in these people too, and it could be both. So, uh, so basically a syndrome that's essentially like COPD in, in a non-smoker um, or someone who stopped smoking a long time ago, but this is still progressing bronchiolitis obliterans or small airways uh, disease, something you could see in, in RA patients that could cause you know, um, a lot of chest tightness and, and dyspnea that, that's, that's progressive or in, in subacute. Um, exacerbations of chronic ILD. So a lot of these patients have stable interstitial lung disease like fibrotic NSIP or potentially like UIP, that's nonspecific interstitial pneumonia and usual interstitial pneumonia, different types of chronic interstitial lung disease but they may have an acute on chronic exacerbation. Of course, you're gonna need to look for infection. Is there a bacterial or other atypical pneumonia? Is this a cardiogenic process or, or some overlap? But yeah, you could see patients with acute exacerbations of interstitial lung disease and need to, to deal with those patients. That's one. Would we work those patients up and treat them differently because we think it's potentially secondary to rheumatoid arthritis or would you recommend we go through our standard pathways for that. Good question. You know, I, I think a standard approach is still important because we need, you, you know, all are, are the experts in evaluating for acute uh, cardiac and, and, and lung um, disease processes. But I think maybe the awareness of, of, the, of the fact that inflammation, you know, may be at the root of this. And even if there is infection, we may need to use glucocorticoids to treat, um, you know, the acute ILD and help, help prevent that from getting worse. Those people may need to be admitted to the hospital, actually, too, because their reserve may be somewhat low. And so I think uh, standard, but, but then awareness that of, of the severity and the fact that ILD is, is a big contributor to mortality in people with rheumatoid arthritis. As I was reading about this to prepare for our interview, I read something about patients having rheumatoid nodules in the lung that could cause pneumothoraces and effusions. Help me understand what's happening there. Yeah, great question. Um, rheumatoid nodules are still, still, still occur. Their prevalence has gone down in, 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 in the past decade or so with improved therapies. Uh, in general, the prognosis of RA has, has improved. Extraarticular disease manifestations have generally gone down, although not all of them have equally been improved. Uh, for example, lung disease is still a big problem. But we, do, we see lung nodules less than we used to. They can still occur, especially in people who have positive rheumatoid factor and anti-CCP. So we tend to see them in seropositive patients. I would also say that rheumatoid nodules are a marker of more severe extraticular disease manifestations in general. So you find someone who has big rheumatoid nodules in their elbows, and on their hands, for example, or their feet, think about just greater disease severity in general. And they probably have higher risk of severe RA. They probably have higher risk of infection, for that matter, and higher risk of other sorts of uh, extraticular disease manifestations. So rheumatoid nodules can occur on around bony surfaces, you know, where there are pressure points, where there's a lot of friction, you know, so they, they often occur on the elbows, either at the olecranon or, or the extensor surface of the forearm, 
And think of that when we put it rest our, our arms on our chairs, armrests, et cetera, and that's part of why. We tend to see it around the feet for similar reasons where there's pressure. But they also can occur in the lungs. Similar pathophysiology, chronic, um, sometimes granulomatous uh, inflammation with palisading histiocytes and plasma cells, T and B cells would be seen in, in these nodules. They can, uh, and there may be small vessel vasculitis in those nodules as well. And so through that process, there may actually be some necrosis. And so they can cavitate and they could masquerade as another type of granulomatous process or possible malignancy in the lung. And so there's often this differential diagnosis. Is this a cavitary nodule from histo or some other type of fungal infection? Or is it a cancer? Or is it something else, sarcoid? And you know, usually sarcoid nodules are not granulomatous or sorry, not caseating. But yeah, and sometimes they can get complicated. And you know, you they I guess if it was close enough to the pleura, you might see a pleural effusion. I, I've never seen a pneumothorax related to a rheumatoid nodule, so I think that'd be a rare kind of case report type thing. Certainly, I've seen situations where we've had the dilemma of, is this a rheumatoid nodule lung or is this something else? There are certain medications that we tend to use and, and it might help a bit more in, in people with rheumatoid nodules. The issue is just being aware that rheumatoid nodules can exist in the lung and be, would be on the differential diagnosis for those patients if they have known RA. The other half of the cardiopulmonary system, let's talk about a patient presenting with chest pain. What increased risk factors uh, would I be thinking about if a patient comes in and they uh, are roomed in a standard room with some chest pain and I see RA on the past medical history. Yeah, well, I, the first point is raising awareness that people with rheumatoid arthritis and actually a lot of inflammatory uh, rheumatic diseases have greater risk of, of uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and acute coronary syndromes. Part of the issue is that the systemic inflammation we see in these diseases seems to be the, the risk factor that drives the development of, of plaque. Plaque in these people, because the systemic inflammation tends to have very vulnerable plaque that's sort of prone to rupture and that's a problem. There may not even be that much, that that extensive burden of plaque, but just the plaque that's relatively unstable and you can get for acute myocardial infarction. These patients may not have typical risk factors or not as much risk factors as some other patients. So you have to have some higher index of suspicion that a rheumatoid patient is coming in with chest pain that we think about it. Sometimes symptoms may be atypical because a lot of our patients are more sedentary. They're not exerting themselves as much. So you may not get as much of a story about warning warning signs, you know, of progressively worsening angina or something like that. You just may not see that. And so, you know, again, it's a factor that should raise suspicion for something serious and, and definitely thinking about, you know, an acute coronary syndrome in those patients. I really appreciate the way you phrase that. So this may be a younger patient with fewer other risk factors for whom we should take the complaint of chest pain seriously in consideration of acute coronary syndromes. This reminds me a lot of when we talked about lupus with Dr. Thanarajasingham, and the same kind of thought has to go into these folks, I think. It is, and, and maybe even a bit more in lupus in the sense that they get at an even younger age because the disease starts at a, at a younger age. But but the, the concept still applies. The estimate risk increase is about 50%. You know, so we're talking about hazard ratio of 1.5, looking at meta-analyses of studies that have looked at this uh, in, 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 in well-done studies. So it's, it's a meaningful increase in risk, and it's just, it's, it may be even higher in patients with higher disease activity over time. Mm-hmm. If they have had extra-articular disease manifestations, that's associated with a, an increased risk of heart disease. If they have significant joint damage, that'd be a sign of someone who probably is at higher risk of heart disease. Seropositivity, it's especially in the rheumatoid factor 
factor in anti-CCP positive group. So if you happen to have the information, even look look harder. There's some evidence that after um, acute cardiovascular event, that mortality is higher in people with, with rheumatoid arthritis than the general population. We have some data looking at both MI, but also heart failure. It's not just myocardial infarction, heart failure is increased. It, it tends to be heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Is this just ischemic cardiomyopathy or is there something else at play? It's not ischemic, yeah. I mean, yes, ischemic is, would be one mechanism that these people could be susceptible to, but it's also just probably chronic small vessel inflammation and the, and the development of myocardial fibrosis. They, you know, this, this is going to present in older ages, so probably more like 70, 80s. Type, type age range. But you should think about heart failure as something that, that could be going on in these pati- patients. Do these patients who have both rheumatoid arthritis and possibly secondary heart failure have similar outcomes when we give them appropriate heart failure care? Probably don't have the greatest sort of long-term data comparing efficacy, for example, of cardiovascular drug management and how that works. I will say that in general, cardiovascular survival has improved and we should, we should note that. So things are better than they used to be. And we credit that to a lot of things earlier diagnosis, more effective use of, of disease-modifying drugs. And so overall, the prognosis has improved with respect to, to cardiovascular survival. Still, it's not going away, and, and these patients still can have those kinds of complications. The, the paper we did look at before, that after hospitalization for heart failure, there was higher mortality in people with RA with heart failure than people without RA who had heart failure. Part of that's they have a lot of complex health problems. People with rheumatoid arthritis tend to accumulate comorbidities. So this concept of multimorbidity. From the time of diagnosis, people with RA accumulate morbidities faster than the general population. And when I see that in the clinic, and probably if you see people in the emergency room, you'll, you'll probably get a sense about that. They're on a lot of medicines. They often have long med histories, and they just have greater complexity on average. This is exactly why we wanted to talk with you, because <laughs> you can imagine how scary that is Yeah. when you see a whole bunch of medications that you're unfamiliar with a lot of conditions that are vaguely familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, this is so helpful. Good. As an aside, you mentioned earlier that these rheumatoid nodules can develop even in lungs. Do you ever see them in the heart? Well, they can form on heart valves. And so you can see something similar. It may not look like a, a, a large nodule, but you can get some um, nodular thickening. Valvular heart disease is one of the extraticular manifestations of rheumatoid arthritis. We can see people with fibrosis, small nodular thickenings, and that can eventually lead to uh, either valvular stenosis or, or regurgitation. And so that's something that we see. Maybe not as, as, as prevalent as maybe it once was, but it's, it definitely still occurs. I think there are certainly kind of case report level where we see large rheumatoid nodules in the heart, not very commonly detected or not doesn't come into clinical recognition very often. But rheumatoid nodules, there, there are cases forming in the spine. There's a rare thing called rheumatoid pachymeningitis where you can get nodular-like thickening on the meninges of the brain. This sounds bad. Which is bad. That's uh, a very bad thing. Rheumatoid is one of those diseases that's pretty protean and can cause a lot of different syndromes throughout lots of different bodily systems. But the most common extraticular manifestations are clearly lung. So we talked about the different types of parenchymal versus airway type disease. Cutaneous rheumatoid nodules, but also vasculitis. You can see cutaneous vasculitis. I might mentioned there, you can get small infarcts around the nail beds. Those are called Bywaters lesions. And Eric Bywaters was a famous rheumatologist in Britain that described those years ago. Those tend to be relatively benign. And so if you see that, you shouldn't be necessarily scared that that something terrible is going to happen. So wake up rheumatology in the middle of the night for an emerging (laughs) consult. (laughs) Right. But on the other hand, rheumatoid vasculitis can be more serious and you can get large 
ulcers on the lower extremities. And that's bad news. And all those people may also have nerve involvement. So vasculitic neuropathy or what's called mononeuritis multiplex, where over a period of weeks to few months, you could see stuttering motor and sensory sy symptoms with, uh, with neurological loss of function. And that's a pretty serious situation that we have to treat aggressively uh, with either rituximab would be probably the preferred agent nowadays, steroids. We used to use cyclophosphamide, but we're using that less and less nowadays with our more advanced therapies. If I'm seeing somebody with these ulcers, I may not recognize that this is a vasculitis and instead try and arrange outpatient follow-up. Is that going to be okay to initiate those immune modulating agents as an outpatient rather than? I mean, vasculitis is, um, I mean, we're wanting to get on top of it within weeks. It's, it's, it's not going to probably progress dramatically or acutely unless it's complicated by an infection in, in that type of a time frame. I would say vasculitis, you need to work on it within within days to weeks at, at, at minimum. Not, you know, a follow-up in three months is not acceptable and the patient will, will deteriorate in that period of time. So if that gives you some idea, That's very you know, good. in terms of the follow-up need, they don't always need to be admitted, but trying to facilitate early follow-up is in what you all do very well is, is important. So another group of patients that, that come in are multi-system trauma patients. What might I be looking for in a patient with a history of RA that might be different or, or is it the same? Yeah, good question. And generally, of course, you're gonna, there'll be a lot of basic things you look for that I, I'm <laughs> sure would be the same. Yep. Um, but a couple of comments about that. Patients with rheumatoid arthritis have a higher incidence of osteoporosis. And so, you know, unfortunately, someone with RA in a, in a uh, especially if it's been more advanced, right? Someone who's had RA for 10 plus years, and especially if they've had any joint damage, corticosteroid exposure, osteoporosis could be a big factor and there could be a lot of fractures in that situation yeah. um, that, that could be quite serious. And so being aware of the fragility there and lento axial subluxation. I think appreciating that there is syno synovium that can be targeted by the disease at C1, C2, and especially of that sort of transverse ligament where the DENS is articulating with a C1. And so instability there is a big problem. And that can occur in people, especially, you know, so who, do, who do, you can't look for everybody that is, is having that. So I would think about people who have had disease for more than 10 years who have deformities. So if you see deformities on exam, you should be, if you, if you have to think about intubation, if you have to think about, you know, neck trauma, be aware of the possibility of instability and take precautions to perform intubation, for example, in a way that will be safe on the neck without excessive extension um, positions, which could be could be dangerous. I've also read about scleritis, uveitis, a, yeah. a host of other eye-related complications mm -hmm. that can happen. Can you walk us through some of that? Yeah, mainly episcleritis and scleritis. That can be quite a serious thing, and it could present to the emergency room. Symptoms of scleritis it's it's pain, right? It's ocular pain. And it's not just irritation, it's really pain. Just with ep episcleritis is relatively mild. It's not threatening the eye or the globe at all. It's a sign that maybe things are not all well with the, with the immune system, with the disease, and we need to be adjusting therapy. But scleritis is more of a, you know, an, uh, an urgent situation because scleritis can, can threaten the eye. And uh, there's a severe complication that's called scleromalacia perforans, where because of just persistent untreated scleritis, you can actually perforate the globe. And, and that's sort of a devastating outcome, obviously. Perforans is not something I want to hear at 1 no. a.m. in you the emergency department. Perforans. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want it on my chart. Yeah. <laughs> so I think these patients, honestly, the, the answer usually is we're going to have to use some steroids. Uveitis is not actually associated with RA. Uveitis is associated with spondylitis arthritis, so the ankylosing spondylitis, reactive arthritis, um, even in psoriatic arthritis, you can see that. We don't tend to see uveitis or iritis or uveitis in RA. 
we see it in some other MAC diseases too that are like like uh, GPA or uh, Anca vasculitis. And so, the illness script here, as I'm uh, receiving this presentation from from a trainee and walking over to a trauma, this is a patient who the propericane that I'm putting in the eye, they come in with eye pain and. Uh, but the propericane didn't make it better. It's not the cornea primarily that's painful. And so I'm hearing this story that the propericane went in, but the pain persisted. And suddenly I'm stopping and saying, uh, did you tell me about that past medical history? What else is going on? And suddenly I'm hearing RA and I'm saying this isn't just getting some erythromycin ophthalmic ointment and going home. I think the other piece with scleritis in my experience is that there's pain with ocular movements, mm. which is, to me, always kind of gives me a tingly sense when patients tell me that. Yeah, the, the, they, it does tend to hurt to move, the, move their eye for sure. Um, and, you know, imaging can help. You can see thickening of the sclera on, on MRI sometimes. Um, of course, ophthalmology needs to see these patients. And, and, uh, but ophthalmology, you know, they're, they're probably not enough of them in the ED always, and, and it may be hard to get them in, I'm assuming. So um, We're really blessed. Just here. like rheumatology, it's hard to get us in there too. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> Honestly, both of your teams have never, never been a challenge when we need it. Okay, that's help. good. Uh, that's good but to hear. others may have different experiences, <laughs> but no, very supportive. Briefly, GI. I have a patient showing up with a GI bleed and a history of RA. Should I just be thinking about a uh, ulcer in the stomach, or what's commonly causing this? Yeah, with GI, I think a few things come to mind. One is, yeah, one of the bigger things that we deal with in these patients would be would be um, ulcer disease. So peptic ulcers in the... The, the know, patient I sent home for three weeks on NSAIDs and uh, <laughs> this is back to me. Right. You know, and sometimes I'm surprised that they're young people too can get problems like that. So I think it, it is important to educate people. Sometimes they're not even, haven't been aware. I'm just having stomach pain. It's just, I, I just kept taking, you know, the naproxen right on top of it. And I'm always kind of like, how do we let that happen? Why didn't I hear? Why didn't they stop it sooner? And so I think a lot of it is education is really important on that. But yes, thinking about ulcers, maybe a more severe complication that would be I think it easily come in the emergency room is there are some drugs that can predispose to um, what has been defined in the literature as gastrointestinal perforation. And so I, I think uh, as an example, and in particular, the IL-6 receptor blockers, tocilizumab and cerulimab, and maybe the JAK kinase inhibitors are associated with increased incidence of gastrointestinal perforations. It's probably things like complicated diverticulitis that perforates. And so, you know, being aware of that, you know, I'm not sure exactly what way that's useful to you. I suppose, again, it's about predisprobability and what you're thinking could, could be happening and how that might relate to their medication. Just like you said, we're always trying to weigh pretest probability on whether we should get an image, mm -hmm. CT, or whatnot. And seeing these medications and knowing that complication is just an added data point for me to help make a more educated decision for the yeah. patients. It's very helpful. I completely agree because uh, a patient who comes in with a swollen joint and a little bit of chest pain who has nothing else going on, I'm trying to decide, am I getting that EKG? Um, you know, Am I getting that CT abdomen and pelvis in addition to the joint pain? And what I'm hearing is these patients need that whole workup, whereas uh, another patient may not. Maybe we're going to focus a little bit more on one problem. Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to recognizing the complexity, both in numbers of conditions and medications. And you know, oftentimes, you have to kind of go the extra mile to, to look for something in, in, in this sort of patient population. I read a case report that concerned me. And it was a patient who had cricoretinoid arthritis oh, symptoms. Yeah. Mm. And they had a lot of difficulty breathing, ended up needing intubation. Mm. Have you experienced anything like that in your practice? Well, I have. Um, it, it doesn't come up 
fortunately, very often. Cricor, you know, the cricorotenoids are, are true joints. There isn't, uh, you know, and, and they can become inflamed in these patients. Usually they present with kind of hoarseness, you know, or maybe throat pain. And we approach it by involving ENT and having them take a look and try to figure out there's something else going on. And a lot of times there's questions of sort of, sort of acid reflux disease versus the RA or, you know, some other type, type of uh, irritant. It's not always so clear cut based on ENT exam, I would say, but you have to have kind of a high, you know, just awareness of the disease and what can happen. And a lot of times these patients need more treatment anyway, because it's a bit of a marker that the disease is simply not well controlled. I think, yeah, I mean, it can. And if, if there's some sort of vocal cord spasm, you know, and that can get into where we are seeing some problems with the airway. And, and that's a scary situation to me. I'm sure it is for you. Um, so I'm glad there's a place for them to go and get, get some urgent attention for situations like that. I think these diagnoses are really important because I feel like I'd hear this story and be thinking epiglottitis, things like that. And I'd do my assessment and wouldn't see anything and suddenly think we're in the clear uh, but the patient seems to be getting worse. I don't. I don't understand. And so that's mm-hmm. the the important part of thinking of these diagnoses. That I, I actually hadn't heard of this before before prep for this. And I think hoarseness is a chief complaint that comes up infrequently, but when it does, it's hard to have a really robust differential for that. And so this is one more to just add to our. Yeah. I agree. It's it's hard to evaluate in, in outpatient clinic and let alone I think in the emergency room because getting an exam of that area is 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 not trivial very quickly and certainly I'm not capable of doing it. So it really it's like much like the eye where you really need to have uh, a team involvement to, to evaluate it and, and that's not easy. So but I think knowing of these patients can be at risk maybe helps at least know how to what, what's going to have to be done to evaluate it. When we talked with Dr. Thanarajasingham about lupus, we spent a good amount of time talking about patients having comorbid psychiatric diagnoses. Mm. Do you see that with rheumatoid arthritis as well? Patients with rheumatoid arthritis, there are uh, comorbid psychiatric diagnoses. It's not the same spectrum as lupus, however. So a, a little bit of a distinction is lupus can directly, I mean, involve the brain. The brain is a target organ of lupus, lupus cerebritis. More formally, it's known as, as neuropsychiatric lupus, and those patients can have psychosis. You know, I remember seeing it, my, my most vivid memory of a patient with neuropsychiatric lupus um, had been transferred from uh, a facility in Indiana to us, but had been found walking around in a park claiming that she was seeing Brad Pitt, and um, and that was her presentation of, of, of lupus. I mean... In, you know, one can sort of chuckle about that. At the time, I was, her family was obviously very terrified and, you know, very bizarre behavior for this young woman. And with one infusion of methylprednisone, her behavior normalized, back to normal. So, That's incredible. How, um, how, how did we get to that diagnosis? Because I could, I can, you know, I'll see that situation actually yeah. not that infrequently. Sure. And I try and do a, a well-intentioned organic workup looking with a head CT for a first psychotic break, things like that. But I don't know how I would get to a diagnosis of lupus. And yeah. and once we medically clear, we're really going down a psychiatric pathway. We're, we're admitting to a psychiatric hospital for antipsychotic. And so I'm, I'm in awe that somebody- I think it's to unusual to, 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 for lupus psychosis to be the presenting manifestation. It's possible. In reality, it's more likely that they've already been evaluated in the outpatient area, and it's either known that they have an undifferentiated connective tissue disease- mm. 
or that they have lupus. And this actually was a patient had known lupus. Interesting. Okay. And it just, it was probably undertreated. Yeah. Under, and, and the warning signs were not recognized, unfortunately, in the outpatient clinic. You know, and again, this is all in hindsight. It's not very yeah. easy in hindsight. And harder when they're, you know, who's going to be the one that if I don't quite get on top of this just fast enough, that mm-hmm. she's going wind, to wind up a psychosis in the ED somewhere. Right. I also appreciate in this case that this is the, the case of psychosis that steroids made better. Right. Compared to the other way around, which we see with some frequency. Yeah, that's the other thing that happens. Yeah. And, and steroids don't always help, but that's a nice example. So, but, but in comparison to RA, the brain is not a target organ in the same way. I will say that what's, what's prevalent in RA is depression. So depression is present in somewhere between 20 and 40% of our patients with RA, depending on the, the population that you're looking at and the particular study. But it's quite prevalent. A lot of that is probably, you know, sort of secondary effect. The effects of chronic pain, chronic inflammation. There's a lot of interplay between um, the, the immune system and neuroendocrine pathways that probably uh, lead to this higher risk of, of depression. I think anxiety disorders are also common, but for some reason, it's depression that sort of stands out in the literature. So maybe being aware of that, I think. Some of the drugs we use are associated with suicidality, Premalast being being one medication. That's not really used for RA, but it's used for, for psoriatic arthritis. There have been some cases of, of that with quite a few of our medications um, on, on that side of things. And uh, so I think just a, being, uh, being aware of that too. But we don't see psychosis. So Psychosis is not really a thing I think is associated with RA or, or, or of increased prevalence in people with RA. But depression, anxiety disorders are, are common, just as they are probably in the general population, but they're a bit more common in RA. So what I'm taking away is that rheumatoid arthritis is a complex disease with many variable presentations as well as having relevant relationships with other diseases and medications and syndromes within medicine. It begins with the immune system targeting the normal and natural citrullinated peptides of the body, which leads to an inflammatory state in various targets, including joints. Certainly, rheumatoid arthritis patients will have joint pains, and we should keep it on our differential for these chief complaints. Though our primary role is always in emergency medicine to evaluate and treat more urgent and dangerous conditions like septic arthropathy first. And there can be clues on history and examination, such as high fever, which isn't common with rheumatoid arthritis, though definitive evaluation or exclusion of septic arthropathy will come with synovial fluid analysis. When talking about physical examination, John shared how helpful it is to have a systematic approach to the joints, including a discussion of tenderness, using a standard of having enough pressure to blanch the nail as a set point for the amount of pressure to apply on the joint line. Also, it will be important to discuss swelling, the presence or absence of effusion, whether or not there's pain with range of motion, and carefully document all of these findings so that we can be more helpful to downstream practitioners. In addition, when considering RA, evaluating the patient with a CMP, sedimentation rate, CRP, anti-CCP test, and rheumatoid factor, as well as x-rays and ultrasound, can be helpful. With regards to ultrasound, Dr. Davis explained that the findings of synovitis which can assist in the diagnosis include increased power Doppler signal in the synovium as well as higher grade grayscale findings of thickened and inflamed synovium. Patients with an acute flare of RA may benefit from steroids with a targeted dose around 20 milligrams of prednisone daily for an extended period of time with a thoughtful taper plan. 
as well as NSAIDs as the treatment for the acute flare. Of course, many patients will have the diagnosis already established and can share their personal experience with what helps them, and that should certainly be taken into account when making treatment plans. We reviewed the medications these patients may come in with, the DMARDs, or disease-modifying anti-rheumatic disease medications, which are grouped into common and biologics. The common DMARDs include drugs like methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine, sulfsalazine, and leflunamide. These commonly have GI side effects, but can also cause, in a more dangerous fashion, myelosuppression, especially in renal failure or patients with reduced renal clearance and are known to have adverse drug interactions, including, very commonly, with antibiotics like trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. The biologics are the TNF-alpha inhibitors, and because they are inhibiting some of our immune defense systems, they place patients at greater risk of infections, including intracellular infections and atypical pathogens like fungi, etc. There's also some risk of hypersensitivity reactions, and we as emergency physicians should actively consider if our patient's presentation could be related to one of these medications when we see them on our patient's medication list. We learned about extra-articular considerations of RA, including how nodules can form in a variety of locations and signal more advanced disease states when they are present. They can precipitate conditions like pleural effusion, and we should be watchful. RA can affect the spine, especially in patients with other deformities from RA. We should be thoughtful about atlantoaxial instability, especially during intubation. Patients may present with eye pain, especially intense pain not relieved by propericane, as Alex pointed out, or when they have pain with eye movements. These patients may benefit from more timely ophthalmologic evaluation for the potential of scleritis. RA is associated with greater rates of depression and anxiety disorders, and we should be careful to watch for this in these patients. For me, this has been an incredible dive into an area that I have personally not been as thoughtful before and as thoughtful as I hope to be moving forward. What did you take away from this, Alex? I, I completely agree. Um, it's all about pausing in this circumstance and trying to think what, it, what else could be going on here and how do I not prematurely close this case with something that I see more often and is more benign. This has been incredibly helpful for me. Uh, even the simple, very specific things like the Bactrim and methotrexate. I'm going to remember that now for a long time. <laughs> and then these bigger picture uh, approaches to things like how to do the MSK exam and considering that interstitial lung disease is so much more of a, a risk for these patients. Are there other things we haven't talked about, but you wish emergency department practitioners would know? And then can you speak a little bit to what your patients tell you about their experience coming to the emergency department and how we could get better? Yeah, you know, I, I first of all, admire you all for being able to take care of so many people and, you know, with volume and, and such a diversity, right, that you have to encounter. I remember back to my days of working, you know, residency in the, in the ED and all the kinds of uh, situations that come in. So that I'm sure that's a, a rewarding kind of fun thing to deal with, uh, also a challenging thing. I don't know that I, I, that, uh, I have anything else particular that I wanted to cover. I, I think that Fortunately, it sounds like the, the major things I wanted to get across are coming across, which is that if you're, if you're seeing RA listed as a diagnosis on the chart, I think important is to step back and how could that be related to what's going on here? You know, And really that goes for probably any rheumatic disease. The medications are a really important thing and, and there's a lot of 
ways in which they can contribute to, um, unfortunately, a risk of acute illness that could very easily present to the ED. I think maybe something else, it, it's, it's always fair to, to, to call us, and I have people from my colleagues in, in, around the health system, for example, where there is not as much rheumatology presence. Maybe that's another point to make, is that unfortunately, rheumatologists are in far fewer numbers than we need to have to take care of all the patients with rheumatic diseases. Access is exceptionally tight um, across the country, and this situation is getting worse. I think as of 2025, we're supposed to be about 1,000 rheumatology FTE short of what we ought to have across the country. That's a, that's a, a lot of, of people. And by 2030, I think it's supposed to be you know more than that. So the point is that, um, and because of that, you may be seeing more patients through rheumatic diseases than you probably ought to be under ideal circumstances. Hopefully, there is someone that you could reach out to, and we have, you know, at least in, in Southeast Minnesota, we provide pretty good coverage and input for a pretty wide area. And people from the ED in Eau Claire or Mankato or Owatonna call me, and, uh, and we try to help out as much as, much as we can. So I think that's um, uh, important. Important to kind of understand what are pathways to kind of get patients in or, or facilitate evaluation. And we have a good example of that here that I think is, is, is working. Thank you so much. That was incredible. It was great. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful to join both of you today. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us for the May episode of Always on EM. I hope you found this really valuable. I know I certainly did. Dr. Davis's knowledge of RA is so deep and so expansive that I feel like we could ask him questions for weeks and not come close to tapping out his knowledge on the subject. If you found this helpful or enriching, please do us a favor and like, comment, or follow us. And most importantly, tell your colleagues and friends to come listen as well. We really appreciate you and hope to have you back in the middle of the month. So what else is left to say except, DJ, play that exit music. The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda.